0: welcome to another episode of athens and jerusalem let's begin where we can't escape let's begin with logos now i would say that this openness this being in the world this referring to the world to objects in the world what i would like to call self-transcendence this is disappearing as soon as you project a human being into a lower dimension than its own dimension.
1: Point of the V goes up to the to the nuclear explosion that created it. Uh, so, tell me this, Dr. Oppenheimer. Do uh, you ever become frightened at what you're finding
0: out here in this area that can't be measured in either time or space?
1: I you see that's the real point. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts. Open
0: up your hearts to Athens and Jerusalem. The infants of our culture, united, independent, polarized and even bloody. Athens, the cradle of wisdom and rationality. Jerusalem, the cradle of faith and spirituality. In this podcast, we look at reunion. Could reason be more than modern secular skepticism? And could spirituality be more than belief? So welcome to another episode of Athens and Jerusalem. And we are here together, all three of us, Stephen and Cameron, and me, Knut Ove. So this episode, we will try to say a little bit about the connection between religious or uh, life view and war and environment is there a connection what, what what thoughts do you cameron have on the topic
1: well i have <clears throat> I, I i think i would like to start with really some questions because uh, i wonder how do we face the world situation as it is today because what what science is obviously telling us is that we are in in a very difficult situation, so to say, or or even a catastrophic one, with the with things that are happening to our planet physically in terms of climate change, and then of course our news media show us things like uh, war going on. I mean, there is now war in Europe for some time, something that was rather unexpected. But there are of course other wars and other similar situations going on in other parts of the world that don't get that kind of media coverage there's great economic crisis building up and and my question is you know like how do we people deal with that and and it seems to me when i look at most people around me that they somehow manage to ignore it i don't know if that is a uh, conscious or unconscious but I mean people just sort of go on living their lives as they would always do as if nothing really is happening and I don't know if it's because we think that things are going to continue or we hope things are going to continue as they are and that these are just sort of small uh, dislocations so to say but I think the, the question is I, I mean sooner or later these things are really going to hit us hard and I, I think the to me, the question is, so what are we gonna do then? And especially us in countries where things have been quite stable and, and comfortable for most of the population for a long time. We're not used to, we don't even have any kind of resilience. So what's gonna, what's going to, and I think these are important issues, both from a point of view of society, but especially from the point of view of education, like how do schools prepare or do they prepare the young generation for an age of quite sort of violent transitions mm-hmm. I'm, I'm i'm reminded of what the italian i'm sure you're familiar with antonio gramsci the italian uh, philosopher or, or thinker and and, and this this well known quote from him where he says that the old world is dying and a new world is in the process of being born it is the time for monsters and and i think it's this it's this predicament i mean how do we face this and what what gives us hope what gives us a direction uh, or or some idea of how to act in this situation other than just ignore it and um, so I, I think these are some of the questions that sort of go through my mind at this point
0: could, could yeah. i just comment on on it before you stephen mm-hmm. go on uh I think there's in in education i've I've seen a lot of work be done to make the children become more aware of the situation and more aware of the problems and i even seen them the children actually trying to believe that they are the one who are to save the world and they are if they don't do all the different uh things that they are told to do then the world is gonna Become a monster or whatever, and I think that they 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 like carrying a very heavy burden on their shoulders without really understanding how to deal with uh, such big problems. And it's in the Norwegian school system. There's a lot of a lot of talk, a lot of talk about environment and 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 the problems. But so so in in my opinion. I think we should be very, um, there's a difference between what one person can do and what we have to do on the political level. And I Mm -hmm. think there is no way that there's going to be any changes if we are not changing something in the political level. And also, I think if we we actually should make, uh, like say that we, we have to, from one generation to another we have to uh, lower our um way of living we have to we have to actually stop um producing and consuming as much as we do then i think we have to start from when we are born that means that we 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 have to actually to the next generation we are we are not we, we can't give them as much comfort as they have if we I think they should in, stop having the comfort because it is very difficult for us to say that from 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 one day to another I'm gonna stop having the comfort I have of making the footprint I do on the earth. And I, I think that's one of the reasons I think that's why that people don't really yeah, they go on live as they do without actually they we have it's, it's not I don't think really it's possible to change our habits in the way we need without actually starting from when we are born.
2: Hmm. I, I completely agree with that. Um, it, it, over the last few centuries, the the arc of civilization and progress, the industrialization of, of society has increased our consumption and, and exploitation of the environment which was you know, okay for say a few centuries. We were able to get away with it um, until this generation where we've suddenly abruptly run up against the edge of the resources of the planet. And we're now at a point where we're seeing the effects of this unrestrained consumption in, uh, in, our, in, in the climate uh in very measurable ways and you know we of course should have seen this coming a long time ago but it seems to be human nature that we are our center of gravity is on our own selves and our own self-interest and our default setting is to consider what's good for us and and maybe our family and and those with whom we're immediately in contact with but what is so desperately needed today is to expand that circle of regard beyond our own immediate self-interest and those that that we immediately know and love and, and care about and allow that circle of regard to expand so that it embraces the entire planet not just humanity on the entire planet but everything on the entire planet, realizing that everything is an interconnected system, both us and everyone else, including people on the other side of the planet, as well as us and all of the other, all the life on the planet and all of the inanimate things on the planet, like the oceans and the atmosphere and so forth. It's almost as though we have a, I don't know, a default setting of willful blindness about this. And and that's, I think, where the, the Jerusalem piece comes in, that although religion, as it has been institutionally expressed over over the over the centuries, can be a tool for intensifying this tribalism, this sense of inward directedness, uh, although religion can be a tool for for intense human suffering and war and so forth, I I would argue that that religion in its essence is is the solution here even though re- religion as as it has been socially expressed may or may not be part of the problem or part of the solution i think religion in its essence is the is the is the solution um and i think that that's really in two dimensions the first is that religion shows us that everything is connected um and uh, and that's what allows us to expand the circle of, of regard outward to to embrace the entire planet and that connectedness that religion tells us is, is something that gives sacredness to everything that uh that everything shares a, a spark of the divine within it both you know humans obviously and we talk about the human soul or spirit but also every living thing and beyond that every atom of existence is a is a locus for the shining forth of names and attributes of the of the divine is is one way that that re, that religion teaches us to 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 sacralize our our environment. And the second thing that religion tells us that that can um, that that Jerusalem tells us that that can help us to to solve these tremendous problems of the, of the present day is that it tells us that that the movement of things, the movement of history, things on a large scale, is not random. But ultimately, there's a purpose or direction to things. There's a direction to life. Uh, We can talk about that in different kind of narrative frameworks. One way we can talk about it is we're born into a material world, and the direction is that we become spiritual. We acquire spiritual attributes. We're we're in this world below. We want to get to heaven. That's one way to think about this narrative of movement that underlies the, the cosmos. But another way to think about this this narrative of of movement or progress is that is that the universe writ large is in a process of waking up and we're a part of that you know consciousness is the is the is the ultimate source and goal of things uh and 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 we're part of that this that stream of consciousness which we can think of as in terms of the oneness of all things as uh as as an element of the divine logos the the, the mind that is both the product of, of evolution on the planet, but also as the, uh, is the is the source uh, of of all existence. So, so,
0: so what you say is that we, from when, when we are born, we we have to, in a way, learn this or to to be in the world in a way that we actually understand and feel and have the faith in this experience. Then maybe maybe we could actually yeah, be in the exactly. world in 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 a more i think because it has something to do with our relation with with the world relation the human relation with uh, the the way we are being in the world and of yes. course of course it is in in many ways we 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 think we can control everything and and even what is uncontrollable we try to control and and uh also he says that the more we try to control what is uncontrollable uh it actually becomes more and more uncontrollable mm-hmm. and that's an interesting way of seeing the, the yeah the, the, the progress uh, of our life but yeah so, so i think that's that's important i think also that this idea about progress where, where does this come from? Because we, it, it hasn't always been there. The, it it came in and it started. I think, and uh, uh, quoting Albert Schweitzer, he says that the, the, this this idea about progress was an ethical um, idea. It has to do something with, with to to become more and more human, to become more and more ethical. But then mm. in 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 one moment in, in our um yeah in history we 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 divide we, we, we splitted uh the ethical part of our life with uh with truth or with knowledge and in many ways progress progress was understood as something to to do with pro to knowledge and and mostly knowledge that had to do with control knowledge to control the world mm-hmm. and then we we stop to have the ethical and i, I think that what you are talking about stephen is, is very much to to bring both to to connect the ethical and the knowledge part of uh, of our way of thinking yeah
2: yeah that's that, that's i think exactly right they say that in philosophy you can't derive an ought from an is they say you can't proceed from a a, a description of the world in, in a factual sense, and derive from that a moral, any kind of moral, uh, or or system of of morality. Um, but I'm not sure I completely agree with that. And I think progress is a great this idea of progress is is a great potential counterexample to that claim that you can't derive an ought from an is. And the way I think it's a counterexample is because if, if we take it as a fact that m- movement writ large is, uh, is not entirely random, but that there is a thread of progress, of development, of, uh, of ascent, fr- of let's say waking up uh, that, that runs through the cosmos and it runs through human history. If we take that as a fact, then doesn't that have implications in the moral sphere? doesn't that have implications for what in, in what the good life ought to consist you know for example if there is no direction in the universe if if any choice of action is fundamentally the same as any other choice of action then we may end up with with a, a kind of morality in which each person basically gets to choose for themselves what what the ultimate purpose of things is Uh, and while i don't want to take the opposite extreme that everything is pre-programmed and we don't have any kind of individual freedom i tend to lean in the opposite direction that um that instead of that that there is um that there is a, a directionality to things that helps determine what we ought to do in any given circumstance. Um, so, for example, love is better than hate. You know, Is this a factual statement or is this a moral statement that we can't derive from, from a set of facts? Um, we can say love is wiser than hate and just stop there. Um, and, and maybe that's all we need. Um, but, or maybe, given that the universe is in the state of waking up, given that the direction of things is in the direction of, greater complexity on the physical level and it's in the direction of greater aggregations of things working working together to unlock higher degrees of potentiality as we see in the human human evolution and we see in cultural evolution if that's a direction of things then then love is better than hate becomes i think more of a fact than than simply a moral declaration because love brings things together and hate divides and separates. So love then becomes something which is aligned with the facts of the universe as, as we take them. I don't know what you think about that. Uh, I, I mm-hmm. agree.
0: And I, I think also maybe Cameron, would you say is something?
2: No, no, go ahead.
1: I, I, I'll i come in after you. Go because
0: it's, it's, it's th- this difference between is and ought, it, it, that's not as easy. And I, I think your point proves that how difficult it is because we could talk about moral facts and we could also talk about scientific odds because a lot of uh, knowledge that has to do with control is knowledge that uh, are supposed to have some kind of practical rationality. it Mm -hmm. it, It should help human in different ways like you you shouldn't drink coffee because this or that, or you shouldn't, yeah, whatever we say, and 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 in especially in like in 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 educational science, there's a lot of science that are supposed to tell the teacher what to do, and this kind of knowledge becomes moralistic because it tells you what you ought to do. But it often doesn't remember that we also have an ethical facts, what is actually good to do. So we have to distinguish between these: uh, what what is and what ought, and what is actually good. But we shouldn't, in some way or another, I think we should always uh, have the ethical standard as the as the the end, like the the aim of whatever we do. Hmm. Cameron,
1: yeah, I, I mean, a few thoughts in response to the very interesting um, ideas that you have both brought up. Uh, I think, first of all, I mean, um, Sima was talking about uh, Jerusalem being the answer, and I think uh, my 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 take on that is that the disappearance of Jerusalem in every, almost uh, any form, uh, especially in the Western world and 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 understandably so, has created a void in people's lives that is being filled up with material consumption and comfort. I mean, Marx talks about how religion is an opiate to people, and and that te- definitely can happen. But I think what has now happened in certain parts of the world is that material materialism and and money and uh, comfort and, and, and pleasure have become the opiate of people because people have no real meaning and purpose in their lives so the thing is that you know what 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 gives us the kick or or a desire to live from one day to the other and oh. and this and, and this is why uh, and you know just like like any kind of drug the problem with drugs is that you know you take you take a shot of some drug or a, or whatever it is a pill or something and for a while, everything is fine. But then when the effect goes away, then you have to take another one and usually a stronger one. I think this is exactly how consumerism works because, you know, you buy one thing and then you're happy for three weeks and then the effect waits and then you need to buy something else. So so I think that that um, it's not so much, I mean, and, and by, just by taking things away from people and as you were saying uh, earlier on that, you know, just by... by starting to live a simpler life, it it really doesn't, I think, address, although that that is definitely perhaps what we need to do, but but it doesn't really address, I think, the core of the issue is that what is it that we actually live for? Now, this lack of purpose and meaning is today seen very clearly, I think, reflected in the lives of young people in Europe. The most recent statistics show That young people, everyone in Europe at least, and I I, I suspect this can be even more uh, global, but at least everyone in Europe are feeling mentally less and less balanced and happy. There's a huge decrease in the mental well-being of young people. And Sweden, I think, is the leading country in that sort of uh, downhill. Now, uh, as actually... Uh, A Finnish psychiatrist very wisely said that the response to this should not be trying to give young people therapy because it's not essentially just some sort of a superficial psychological problem. It is a much deeper social and existential problem where young people do not see a meaningful life or a meaningful future or hope for something in the future. And so that's why I think that that if we don't address this existential aspect, we will um, we will we don't have a, really a future. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna lose our young generation in in, in many senses, and uh, we are not going to be able to combat, as it were, these forces that are uh, ruining our our societies and our our even our nature. So in that sense, I think, yes, I, I I completely agree with Stephen that we need some some form of Jerusalem uh, to, to come into, into the picture. And, and I think, now, the other thought that I would, would like to just briefly share is that I think the reason why postmodernism is so much against any grand narratives and the idea of some sort of a teleological view to life, <laughs> It's because these have been traditionally misused in horrible ways, um, in people, you know, forcing uh, destructive ideologies on others in the name of uh, God or necessity or or common good or whatever. And and uh, so, so I think again, like many times in life, the baby has been thrown out. With the bathwater, and I think that we need to somehow rescue the baby here, because I think there there can be grand narratives that are not of the kind that that we're uh, used to. Um, so that's and and okay. finally, it's yes, about about this issue of starting from birth. I have a very wise friend here in Sweden, and he he um, often you know like asks people, "Did you have the best possible parents?" And uh, most people say, well, not really. I mean, our parents were nice, but they weren't really ideal. And he says, yeah, this is the problem. You know, we don't get to choose our parents. So we always can blame our parents that, you know, like, we are not really doing things as we should because our parents didn't treat us the way they should have. But so the question becomes, where does this... I mean, this it's a bit of a uh, chicken and egg thing, isn't it? I mean, where does this... Because I think we cannot, we cannot sort of reset humanity at some point and say, okay, you know, like Thursday the seventeenth at six a.m. Swedish time, every child is going to be, you know, so so somehow mm-hmm. I think the question is, um, and and so with this friend of mine, we we were at one point thinking about the concept of the first generation school, and the idea was like, at some point there has to be a generation who says, okay. The bucket stops here. Now we're going to turn the page and start doing things differently. And I think that it's not going to be everybody in a generation, but I think the question is who are those teachers and who are those students who want to lead this movement and, and start saying, doesn't matter what the past generations did, doesn't matter who our parents were, with us, there's going to be a new page. And I think this is, this is, uh, um, uh, Great invitation to all schools and educationalists who want to do something worthwhile.
2: Mm. Yeah, linking us back to this it, it, it is odd. It strikes me that the the fact of this great mental health crisis, which you mentioned in the context of Europe, but which mm. is absolutely sweeping the youth in uh, in the US uh, as well, mm. is mm. if if we want to take it as evidence or proof that you can't drain you can't drain meaning out of the equation uh and still have a flourishing humanity you know we are in some way programmed to seek meaning and to rely upon uh, we're, we're programmed for grand narratives it would be one maybe a provocative way to put it um and we can't do without them it's a it's a fact of of human psychology if you like uh and And if you like that that points to a deeper truth about uh, about the world. But you also pointed out, I think rightly, of course, the 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 danger, the tremendous danger in the past that grand narratives have posed for humanity uh, because they can be turned to uh, all sorts of tribal purposes uh, and they have. Enormous power over groups of people to make them do terrible things they otherwise wouldn't do. And that's one of the great arguments against uh, against organized religion. It takes religion to make good people do bad things. But the but the re, the repose to that is that it also takes religion to to uh, to make bad people do good things. In other words, religion is the is a, an incredibly powerful tool for shaping and molding human behavior and it's something that that i think we're learning in this century uh in, in the past in the past century or so that we can't simply excise it from human life and expect uh and expect things to go on in, in a healthy way so then the the challenge then comes back to well how do we bring back in a notion of grand narrative w- without bringing the bathwater back in how, how do we bring the baby in without the bathwater? Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, we can say a, a, a few things that are much easier said than done. One of which is, well, is it possible to think about a grand narrative that is not at the same time, a kind of exclusive doctrine or dogma? Can you have grand narrative without dogma? Uh, I believe you can. I have no proof that this is the case, but I think, it's the need of the, I think it's the need of the time. We have to, we have to let go of the dogmatic certainties, but at the same time, we have to have a kind of core sense of belief or conviction that, that, um, that there is meaning in the universe, that it's better to act in a way that aligns oneself with that meaning in all the infinite ways one can do it in all the infinite ways the different human cultures and religions do this um but that there is a a stream uh, you know it's a, a thread of meaning running through things that somehow we're programmed to seek and uh and, and to and to grab onto and to uh and to follow and this has to start as you also said in your third point it has to start from from a very early age but then that certainly in the, in the, in sec- in secular countries immediately raises the question of oh well, are you talking about religious education for young children you know that that's that sounds a little bit suspicious as well um, how, but again if we if we can find a way to solve the problem of non non-dogmatic grand narrative um, then then why not i mean i grew up in the american school system with a certain grand narrative about freedom and liberty and equality and so forth that that's the that's the american religion that's a grand narrative um and that's a very powerful one uh one that i think it's better to have than than, than not to have and so i think just just citing that as a, as an example I, th- I think it's possible to talk about um about early education finding a way to teach the sacredness of everything, of every human being and of the world around us, um, without making it a tool for division and, and tribalism and dogmatism.
1: Just well, very, very brief yeah. input. Sorry, it, it just a very brief input here. I, I would I would think that here Jerusalem can learn something from Athens because I think science is a project where while, especially in, in, in natural science, you believe in an objective reality that exists, but you're not dogmatic about it. You're always open to learn more about it and to, in fact, let go of your previous uh, partially or totally false theories. And I don't see any reason why this could not be done also in relationship to Jerusalem.
0: We would need uh, a religious dialogue in public. Mm-hmm. And that's that's actually very difficult. So and maybe this podcast is, is is an example of trying to to do so, but but it's actually it's not easy. I know there's a huge difference like in in Norway there's more or less no really religious discussion in 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 the public sphere, mm-hmm. but maybe a little bit more in Denmark actually actually. Is it? There's mm. yeah, some some strange connection there with the with the history from yeah mm. in philosophy like Kierkegaard, so Søn mm. and and mm. also mm. Grundtvig has mm. has connected religious and philosophy much more than mm. than um, than others. then so maybe they, they still have this tradition. Mm. But I, I would also say that uh, I don't think we we actually have to like we have to pull this religious study down on young children because young children are interested in existential questions mm-hmm. they they my my experience is that they really they, they love it and they they think about it a lot but they don't have the the the, the, the arena to to really discuss it and, and also in educational studies in in school subject that it's it's so much f- about information and facts about different religion mm-hmm. and not really. And it's also, it's only some religions because it, they have, they have made this idea about some uh, global religions and a huge, the, the largest one. And then they, these are the only religious um, positions that they are all, they are presenting. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that it, I we, 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 I did, Philosophy for children for some years. Mm-hmm. And people see. Uh, and it was so many questions, and they love it and and they they had so much to discuss. And the thing was that they they were very logical, and they often came to the same conclusions and the same thoughts around universe or around beginning. And I also tell a story. I, I had a there was a young boy who was at my cabin, and we were uh, walking down to to the boat. This is this is a it's a very special island in, in in the western part of Norway. when there's no one. It's it's only this cabin and one more on the island. And. And I was walking and I was thinking of everything I had to do because it was only four or five years, and you know he was coming with me in, in down to the boat, and he was not very experienced about it. So I had all these thoughts. And then he suddenly said to me, "Do you, do you know where it all began?" And I was like, uh, "No, what, what are you talking about?" And he said, <laughs> "It's Big Bang." And I was like, "Wow, it's Big Bang, yeah." <laughs> and I, I think that the 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 view, the horizon of the, you know, the, you could see the whole horizon of uh, between the sky and the ocean, and and this is very, it's a very um, erupted um, mm. landscape. Mm. So, and then I asked him, uh, "But but what what was before the Big Bang?" Mm. And then it's he said um I mean, maybe maybe it was the stars and the planets it was before the big bang okay but but what was before the big the planets then and then he was silent and he stopped and then he looked at me and okay maybe that is what they call god
1: <laughs> wow. so
0: so I, I i think that's, you, you just ask questions and see what kind of meaning and what kind of thoughts young children have and they have a lot of thoughts. And this was a young boy mm. living in the city of Oslo normally. <laughs> so I think it's it just proves that it's it's very simple and it's very but maybe maybe also the, the environment and what we are living we, at school we should maybe we should do something to, to to bring in more more nature into school.
1: Yes, definitely. and and more questions and experiences that create an experience of awe because you were you, you've been talking now way uh, uh, about control. And yes, I mean, in certain things it's good to have control. It's good to be able to you know create cars that go the direction you want them to go, whatever but but whereas that is practical in many ways but essentially i think the greatest experience that a human being can have and i think all great thinkers have gone for this and i think especially einstein used to point out to this that you know this experience of awe of mystery of of how small we are and how grand existence is or the universe is this is this is like the highest uh, achievement of human mind to be really able to understand the grandeur of it. And and I think in school, unfortunately, our educational approach makes everything, as you said, controllable and, and everything, you know, like we can put everything under a microscope, as it were. And and so we lose this sense of awe and majesty and wonder. So, yeah, I think that's, that is something. Uh, the, the other thing that that came to my mind is that, you know, you were saying it's difficult to get um, religions to have a dialogue or a conversation, and and I think that's really a pity because I think that there's a a lot of science related. Well, I don't know if there's a lot, but is, there's at least some science related um, research that shows, and I think actually one could say that science as a project itself shows that that human beings basically share the same rationality. I mean, regardless of which culture you're born in, your your the rationality of your mind works in the same way. So it's not like like uh, I don't know, Tunisians see the universe completely differently from the French or something like that. So that that's why science is a universal and global uh, project where everybody from any background can come in and understand it and share it and and you know do it on an equal basis. So. If there is that sort of a universality in human rationality, what stops us from applying this to matters of spirit or spirituality or religion? And I think the only reason is that our minds have been so programmed to look at things from a very narrow perspective that that can create a problem for people from different religious backgrounds to actually have a through dialogue, But I think if we free ourselves from that, that kind of dogmatism, our minds are built very similarly, so it will be not difficult. And this is, I think, what you're referring to, that children have very much less of these problems because their minds have not yet been programmed to that extent to, to look at life from uh, these particular uh, perspectives.
0: Mm-hmm. Could I just, no, just oh uh, sorry, just just a short comment because it's, it's a very new idea. This idea that rationality should not be something common. As a census communist, it, it was a normal idea and something that everybody mm-hmm. was. And Kant, when Kant says that we, you should dare to think for yourself, mm-hmm. that is to use the rationality of all humans. That is to become like everybody else. But it's mm-hmm. it's by dare to to think of yourself so it's a very new idea that we actually when we when we dare to think or to mean something it is something private or something that is no it's not no it's not a human ability and so it's a a very strange idea and it's not more than like like 150 maybe just 100 years I think it's is it's really it really got popular with uh with um la- the t- language turn.
2: Yeah, that was his definition of enlightenment: dare to know. And 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 I think this um this idea that Camara was talking about bringing bringing science into into the picture. The when we're talking about the kind of grand narrative the, the world needs today, which is a narrative of interconnectedness, mm-hmm. a narrative that there is a that that we're all on this journey of the universe waking up, you know, to to, a, to its own to its own self. I think I think science has a great deal to add to this narrative as well. We might traditionally think of science as being responsible for pulling the meaning out, pulling the the the, the foundations of belief out uh, and leaving us with this landscape of smoldering ruins of of atoms in the void where uh where there's no meaning but i think equally we can look at some of the great um great results of of our the scientific discoveries as feeding into a new kind of grand narrative of, of consciousness um it just as a, as a couple concrete examples and you know I, I hesitate to bring it up because it, it gets it gets i think abused and abused a bit too much but um the reality of the world at at a, at a microscopic level beyond microscopic at the quantum level is that everything is entangled with everything else Um, everything truly is interconnected with everything else in a single system uh, which we can um, approximate as separate atoms separate bodies and oftentimes most of the time that approximation is extremely good but we make the mistake of taking that approximation to be the reality but that's not what the underlying science says the underlying science is that everything truly is interconnected w- with everything else so there there are ways in which the the you know the, the the facts of the matter uh are supportive of the of the kind of grand narrative uh, which we could truly call spiritual that that the world needs but even beyond that on a sort of higher level the and and the reason I I got into astrophysics and and, and ended up studying cosmology for, for my for my PhD was as a child, I was absolutely enthralled by pictures of galaxies and by and by Carl Sagan's almost religious awe that he spoke about the cosmos with. It, it, resonated, it struck such a deep chord within me. It struck me as being so fundamentally true and, and, and right. In the, in the opening sentences of 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 Cosmos, in the first episode, he says, "We are a way for the cosmos to know itself." And spoken from a purely you know, materialistic scientific perspective, that statement has such amazing spiritual resonances. I mean, that's a that's a summation of this of the new grand narrative for for humanity, which is also a spiritual grand narrative. That we're a way for the cosmos to know itself the cosmos is in this continual process of of waking up and 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 the more we understand it both in the macroscopic sense of the beauty of stars and galaxies and 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 this grand symphony of the uh, of the universe as well as in the microscopic domain just looking at the at the mechanics of how how cells work you know how ATP is manufactured inside the mitochondria. There's amazing animations of this you can find on YouTube, both on the macro and the micro scale. The more you know about the world, um, it, it, in terms of how it really works, the more filled I think with almost religious awe and wonder you are. A, a sense of wonder at being alive and a sense of the preciousness of of life and the preciousness of the of the civilization that occupies this tiny. This tiny sliver of habitable, uh, you know, surface of the of, of this of this planet. Uh, Carl Sagan also beautifully spoke about that towards the end of his life, in uh, when when he had the the Voyager uh, satellite turn around and take a last picture of of Earth, and it was this mode of dust. It was a speck of light, you know, suspended in a sunbeam. He says, I think that. Um, that our scientific understanding of the world absolutely is partners with, and should not be seen as the as the uh, as the source of this draining out of meaning in the modern world.
0: Uh, I really like it. I, I, I like um, <laughs> the whole story, and I, I think the the we we have to um, try also to try to discover different sorts, different kinds of science and different kinds of knowledge and what what knowledge is to be able to to understand what kind of knowledge that really helps us and to give us closer connection to nature and to the universe then and and what kind of knowledge that actually brings us uh, removes us from reality and removes us from um, existence in school nowadays, they, they often talk about that they, they should learn to learn, or they should. They, they, they are they are all, always told that there are certain abilities they are to learn, but they don't really learn what is. I mean, they, they don't have a, have a, have a, a content, and I think that's that's very difficult for them, and I think maybe that could be some of the problem. if 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 we should understand Carl Sagan or or we we need to understand what what really is and what what is the is the nature of what is
1: very good point mm-hmm. yeah this is i mean here we see i think every time we try to separate such fundamental aspects of reality and life such as at uh, Athens and Jerusalem but even like yeah uh, Processes and content, then then things go bad because because uh, as now has been repeatedly pointed out, existence is an integrated entity, and and uh, if you artificially pull it apart, especially if you pull it apart so that you really believe that it comes in parts and is not integrated, then you really really you know go wrong and 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 you you cannot experienced existence the way that it is optimally sort of devised to be experienced so yeah i think i think that you've got a very good point here Knutuba, about you know, how how should we think about education in schools so that we can bring these elements together
0: there's a there's a nice way of ending this episode uh, with another question of combining something but and I, I think that's one of the uh, the main maybe one of the essence of the whole podcast, even though we we have we see different different aspects and different but we try to combine it, and I think that's something we mm-hmm. should do more of in 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 life in general so thank yeah. you for listening to us today.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: You have been listening to Athens and Jerusalem, created by Cameron Namdar, Stephen Phelps, and Knut Overse. Nora Yul is the broadcast voice and technical support. Music is pieces of Edward Grieg's Morning Mood. The voices in the intro are Victor Frankl, interviewed with Robert Oppenheimer and Pope John Paul II. Thank you for listening, and please check out Another episode.